Welcome to Movie the Musical, a podcast about movies that have been turned into musicals. I am your host, Ben Kay. We are here to investigate, interrogate, and celebrate the art of adaptation from screen to stage. We are a podcast that loves questions. And today's question is, has has the news media gotten worse? Or better since the 1950s. Exactly as evil. <laughs> yes, not no real change. It's the lion news media. Yeah. <laughs> is there a... I mean, as I say, I, I feel like this is a there's a straight line from here to just in, in terms of representation from here to like Nightcrawler. So you know, like sure, <laughs> it's uh, not great. It's really also. I mean, I guess at this time they're using it for like weird personal vendettas and gains and stuff, which is, I guess, better than lying and convincing a, a country to go to war in the Middle East, like David Brooks or somebody like that <laughs> sure. after two thousand one. Yeah, yeah. This you is know. this is more pe- this is more petty <laughs> me- like news. I, I don't know media. if I don't know if JJ Hunsucker has millions of uh, dead people in Afghanistan and Iraq's uh, blood on his hands, like. David Brooks and Thomas well, I, he def- and the other He definitely gets into politics, right? And, uh, you know, there's the bit about, like, Truman is guilty of treason. Sure. <laughs> so, yes. like, mm-hmm. he's got some this opinions. True. Now, yeah, listen, yeah, he would, if he was around today, he would, ha- he would have a, he would be hosting a podcast. Like us, he would be hosting a podcast. Um, Maybe. Probably not about films turned into musicals. Let's say the but two you know of you what? are the J.J. Hunsuckers of the, the podcasting. Hey, hey, <laughs> hey, sure. You know what? I don't know if that's a good or a bad thing. Um, as you may have already noticed, this week's episode is about Sweet Smell of Success, 1957's Sweet Smell of Success, directed by Alexander McKendrick, and its subsequent 2002 musical adaptation, of the same name, uh, with a book by John Guare, lyrics by Craig Carnelia, and music by Marvin Hamlish. Uh, as always, our wonderful producer and editor, Bran Moorhead, is here. Hello, Bran. Hello, everybody. Happy fall. Happy autumn. We made it. You're dead, Summer. Get yourself buried. Uh, I mean... Is what, is what I'll say. Uh, Happy Halloween. We're almost like, this will come out right before Halloween, pretty much. I know, it's spooky. It's fu- It's actually very funny. Semi-spoiler alert. We have a spooky episode premiering literally the day after Halloween. Typed, typed this podcast out really well. This is a spooky episode in its own way, because it's mm-hmm. uh, about how terrifying the media is. And here to discuss this uh, film is... Uh, a wonderful writer, filmmaker, and genuinely uh, a really close friend of mine. Uh, we go over a decade back. Um, ridiculous. Uh, the amazing Fred Pelzer is here today. Hello, Fred. Hello. You did it. You made it on the pod. Uh, it's only like been six months since you first came to me and said, <laughs> you told me that I was doing this movie. I had no choice in it. <laughs> and you're like, it's going to happen like in a couple weeks. And uh, cut to three seasons later. <laughs> his it's a couple of weeks. <laughs> it is maybe a lar- a, a, several couples of weeks. Here's what's up, and his, so yeah. So like I said, Fred, Fred and I went to college together. Uh, the very first like play I directed was a play that Fred wrote. It's we are we've been in and we've I've been in uh, films, short web series, and short films that Fred has directed. Uh, we've been in each other's weddings. We are 
inextricably tied to each other. Uh, and early, and earlier, a few months ago, like Fred alluded to, I believe you watched Sweet Smell of Success, and I think you logged it on Letterboxd, yeah. and I must have seen that. And I was like, oh, okay, there we go. And I think that's all of what did it. I was like, you clearly love this movie, Fred. You gave it five stars. Guilty. Uh, guilty. Um, and then I realized, oh shit, we have to do a whole fucking season of Disney movies. So I was like, hang on a second. And so that's why you're here now. That's why it took so long. Because no I realized I'm just, uh, that this... <laughs> just glad to be here. Uh, yeah, you know, over a decade, Ben, I still think about, uh, the first time I, uh, I became aware of your existence, uh, Please, I l- share the story. Uh, it was at a, a pre-auditions monologue workshop your freshman year, and mm-hmm. uh, I just thought, man, that kid is making a bold choice with that British accent. It's not very good, though. <laughs> <laughs> and then, uh, you know, I cut to like three months later, and you're in a play, and I went, oh, no, that's just how they, they talk. No, actually, I still thought, because you were playing a preppy kid who went to, like, a... I was. I was. I was like, oh, they're continuing to do that choice. Interesting. And then I met you at a party, and you were still talking that way. And I went, oh, no, this is just... This is them. This is me. Uh, <laughs> like, a, like a famous song from a Hugh Jackman musical, This Is Me. Um, so, Fred, I would I would say, and, like, correct me if I'm wrong, I feel like you are, like if Turner Classic Movies and Shudder were a person <laughs> is kind of Aww. how I would describe you. Yeah. Or at least how I how I would describe like your your film taste, uh, at least. That's fair. I mean, I try to be uh, omnivorous as much as possible. You know, if um, you look through my last week of, of movie watching, there's probably like an 80s horror movie, uh, a bunch of Milia's uh, shorts, uh, some like Taiwanese new wave, uh, some some like new superhero movie. I just try to watch anything and everything. <laughs> sure, but I I'd say but you you certainly have like a love. I feel like you've always loved film noir, yes, especially for sure. like that is like one of your like ride or die genres. So, and actually, before we dig into this, because I and I do want to dig into this, I want to because Bran was after we finished the Disney season. So for all of you listeners out there, we did a whole season on Disney movies and it was very fun. And we were- You should listen to it. Oh, you should listen to it. Th- thank you. It was a, it is actually a very good season. It's actually one of our, my favorite. It's a lot of good episodes in there. And Bran and I were talking. I know Bran, you were sort of like, it was really great to sort of have a season with, with a thematic link to it. It's like sort of mm-hmm. being able to sort of be like, this is sort of following a trend and following an arc and we- can like try and make some like grand conclusions and like yeah it kind of stinks like going back not stinks because obviously now we don't have to fucking talk about the disney corporation as true much. there is a uh, great advantage to yeah. being done with that and i mean and as we'll talk about on this episode we finally get to talk about like films like actual like yeah brilliant pieces <laughs> of cinema maybe you got to talk but, about some brilliant pieces of cinema especially no, in the golden uh, the golden yeah, yeah no exactly yeah. early on in the podcast yes, early in the season Yes, early on in the season. But what I think is, I'm, I'm doing. I want to tr- do my darndest to sort of like try and find links from like week to week. So 
this was a phrase that came up uh, last week on our Groundhog Day episode where Sondheim was talking about why he didn't want to, why he eventually stopped trying to chase the groundhog, why he stopped trying to musicalize Groundhog Day. Um, and it's a phrase he's actually used about the musical My Fair Lady. He's not... So, Josh Sondheim, our, our best friend, Josh Sondheim, is not a huge fan of My Fair Lady because he thinks it is gilding the lily. That's the phrase. That's sort of the connective tissue that I've got for today's episode. Um, and in, in that regard, to sort of elaborate, it, the thing's already perfect. In his mind... George Bernard Shaw's play Pygmalion and Harold Ramis's film Groundhog Day are already uh, uh, comparable pieces of art, clearly. Um, <laughs> no argument for me. Yeah, there you go. Um, they are perfect and they need, there's nothing to improve upon them. And so therefore no need for adaptation. Um, that's my setup for today's episode on Sweet Smell. I wonder how you feel about that adaptation, Ben. Yeah, you know, we'll dig into it. But again, it's like, it's... And I feel like that's going to come up actually a lot on this season, at least looking mm. at some of the episodes that we've got scheduled up. There are a lot of movies that we've got teed up that are kind of just like... There are, like, they're perfect. Pretty perfect they're movies, pretty yeah. per- Like, Groundhog Day, like, I, I think you were, you're a little sort of... A, yeah, I, you love it a little more than I do. I still love it, but it's it, but it's still like... Yeah, there isn't a lot to be improved upon as as enriching of a conversation that was we yeah. had last week on it. Um, and I kind of feel that way about Sweet Smell of Success, a movie that, yeah, I, this was my first time watching it, and I was just blown away. And we'll dig into mm-hmm. it a little bit. But Fred, uh, our, fav- our film noir-loving Fred, uh, talk to us about Sweet Smell of Success. Tell Tell us about sort of how you found this movie, sort of what your own journey with this film was. Sure. Uh, you know, it's been on my watch list for a while. Um, you know, it is, it is frequently cited as one of the, the great noirs, um, but it's also, um, you know, it was put out by, um, oh, I'm blanking on his, on his name, uh, Burt Lancaster's uh, studio. And so the rights aren't as immediately accessible. Um, mm-hmm. So it took me a little while to get around to it. Um, and honestly, I was also aided by uh, the pandemic and being in a very fortunate position of, of working from home. And so having my commute time back, uh, which I've mm-hmm. put towards just watching a lot of movies. <laughs> yes. Um, and so, uh, so yeah, I was finally like, it, it was, it popped up briefly on Turner Classic Movies, as you alluded to. And I was like, great. Uh, let me, <laughs> let me dig into this meal. Um <laughs> And it was, it was fantastic. I, you know, I think, you know, film noir, there's like the, the core, I think it's core tropes that can kind of come up to mind, you know, especially you know, like the, the um, Philip Marlowe, like, you know, uh, detective, gumshoe, like, un, uh, you know, uh, um, cracking the case and going around from person to person and, and men in trench coats and fedoras and yeah. like the, you know there's like iconography like that but that the the, the subgenre itself kind of encompasses a, a much broader um set of, of films and ideas and and that ultimately I'll kind of come back to this idea of um, just corruption right like it, it's about mm-hmm. entering a corrupt world and trying and usually failing to um hold on to uh, whatever good is, is left inside of you, which I think is one of the interesting choices about the adaptation that we'll, we'll get to. Um, yes. 
And so one of the things that I, I immediately loved about Sweet Smell of Success is that it is so clearly a noir and yet also is almost entirely outside of the usual signifiers and tropes of the genre. Uh, you know, it's about a press agent and a columnist for a New York newspaper. And yet it is as sordid and acrid as any film noir of the era. Mm -hmm. And it's just, you know, there's there's no saving anybody. No. And still a lot of coats, hats, fedoras, 100%. People cigarettes, are great. You know? I, personally, I wish... And fun phrases like, what am I, a bowl of fruit? <laughs> uh, yes. Yeah, personally, I wish, uh, I wish hats were still... You know, I, I wish JFK had not done away with the hat as a, a key piece of... Uh, I, I think Lee Harvey Oswald did away with his hat is really, really what happened there. Friend! <laughs> Too far. Friend! <laughs> You're not wrong. Um, yeah, we, you know, it's not too late to bring hats back. Yeah. I don't know. I, the M, the men's rights the activist is, movement uh, might have ruined <laughs> that for all was, of us. There was no, a I mean, window. <laughs> Fedoras are loaded. Yeah, that window's closed. Know? It doesn't have to be fedoras, just hats in general. I don't know. I'm trying to... Whatever. You're right. Um, But yeah, you're absolutely right. Like, it is... I mean, because I... Like I said, this was sort of my first encounter with this movie. And it's sort of like, as I was like halfway, like a little over halfway through, yeah, just like atmospherically, I was just like, yeah, it It was interesting to sort of like, sort of have it click where I was like, yeah, this, this is a film noir. But it's like, yeah, you're right. Sort of like, yeah. we do like so associate like... When I think of film noir, I think of, like, Detour. Like, which I, that, for me, is, like, sort of, like, the noir film where it's, like, the, the gumshoe, like, on the run. Like, the, the femme fatale, like, the mischievous, like, female character. And like, that, and, like, that kind of style. And, like, there, obviously, yeah, there are glimpses of it in here. But it's... But, again, yeah, it's, it's about newspapers. It's, like, it yeah. is just, like... Yeah, like like just like you said, it's like glommed onto this like other subject matter. But I think that's kind of amazing because again, like it's using this genre to sort of dig into yeah the corrupt nature of this industry in a way that I mean to look at another movie that was made this year, uh, A Face in the Crowd, uh, Ilya Kazan's A Face in the Crowd, another movie uh, all about sort of a figure played by Andy Griffith, like using his media prowess to sort of like build himself up in the ranks and using it for his own personal and political gain and to sort of dupe uh dupe the public it's 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 fascinating that like both of these movies were made and they're sort of like i mean like you fred you sort of alluded to like this this film sort of like it's sort of like because it's owned by Burt Lancaster's, uh, or was produced by Burt Lancaster's production company, it's like a little sort of under the wire in some in some way. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's got you know. I think there's a Criterion edition out there, which I believe you own. Um, yeah, yeah, I do. <laughs> Whatever. Uh, I want to now. <laughs> I have a problem. <laughs> uh, hey, physical media. I have no, uh, you know, no judgment here. Uh, yes. Yeah. But yeah, no, it's it's just not as you know. Uh, uh, for example, we were talking about me being able to watch it again, and fortunately, I do have TCM, and so I, I was able to just kind of stream it. But otherwise, you know, I mean, you can always uh, you can rent stuff. I don't know. There's like a larger 
interesting conversation about um, both how much more and how much less accessible uh, media is in the streaming yeah. age, mm-hmm. um, not just in terms of like how it's all been fractured across these different platforms, but also, um, you know, there's stuff that's just not available. For example, something I'm wanting to get from the library yeah. right now is Strange Days, um, Catherine Bigelow's uh, 1990s oh, sure. film, which yeah. uh, sure. is just not, you can't rent it you can't stream it um it out of print fortunately we're and it's not even 80 no. years old yeah, like yeah some exactly of these movies, you um know? you know speaking of the spooky season you know, there's another movie that i i've really been wanting to see for a long time called uh, black cat which is um one of the few oh, boris sure. karloff uh and well, not a few but there's quite a few but one of the great karloff uh, lugosi combos and that was one of those. Oh yeah. And it just like was not available, not available, not available. And then all of a sudden, Criterion got the rights from Universal. It was yeah, just I like, would say they just put it up. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, worth a watch for sure. But um, right. Yeah, it's you know, and that's the other thing too is it's constantly changing, right? Um, and so you never know who's going to make a deal with somebody who's just you know Amazon just bought MGM, right? So it's like all of a sudden in the next three years, a lot of that material is going to wind up on Prime as it as it all moves in house. Right. It's like, yeah, we, like, you have to, like, not only, like, pay, like, you have to, we, we have to pay attention to, like, what companies have the rights to what other companies to know, like, where they are going to end up. Right. And even that's not, you know, like, look at the, all the streaming platforms that launched in the last year and a half. And so many of them mm-hmm. had to make special deals to get their most iconic materials back because they yeah. had licensed it out. And then that, those deals all lasted only, like, three to six months during the launch period. And then they reverted back. Right. So it's yeah. like, Harry Potter, Warner Brothers got it for like a brief second, but then went back to Universal to go on Peacock. And meanwhile, like the Matrix went, you know, so it's it's all- So bizarre. You know, I think it's going to settle down a little bit once all of the um, pre-launch contracts are, are up, but it's also, there's still new ones. Sure. Like Kino Lorber just launched a free ad-supported streaming service for cold horror movies. And it's just, oh, it's, wow. you know, I, I texted somebody, I was like, it's just, you know, the Oprah GIF of like, you get a streaming service and you get a streaming service. So it's, <laughs> it's, it's all over the place. Well, this is a great place to plug uh, our new streaming service, uh, <laughs> Movie the Musical Plus. Uh, sure. <laughs> Can you imagine? imagine oh my if, God. You, if you subscribe to our patreon maybe we'll have the funds <laughs> to, to launch that shit um another thing that i mean because we'll, we'll dig into sort of this film a little bit but it's it feels like so many sort of like artistic titans of the moment coalescing around this thing because obviously you have like the two leads like yeah Burt lancaster and tony curtis um really great both amazing yeah, like just oh, kind excellent. of yeah curtis kind of playing against type too because he's pretty yeah. irredeemable and he's like such a loved i don't know he, i feel like he's always like the character you're like i love that right. guy you know totally. what i mean you know he's an absolute slime i mean they both are right. he's a slime oh, ball yeah. in this thing um yeah but then obviously yeah so this is based on a novelette uh by ernest lehman who's actually come up quite a few times because he's adapted uh he's adapted many musicals to the silver screen he wrote the screenplays for west side story and the sound of music and the king and i um but i feel like this is obviously like you know this was his story and he 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 created this um he adapted it to the silver screen with uh, another playwright clifford oditz um I think Alexander, and then the director, of course, is Alexander McKendrick, who's a British director, um, who just directed the Lady Killers before this, which I had 
just seen Fred. Have you seen the Lady Killers? Not the original. Um, only the uh, Coen Brothers one. <laughs> it's. I watched them back to back because I was like, let's Weird. see, let's see what's up. And I'll say, uh, so the original, very good. Like Alexander McKendrick, as we see in this movie, very good. No, it's it's a, it's an Ealing comedy. It's like a classic, like Ealing Ealing comedy. Um, it's absolutely. It's Alec Guinness. It's bonkers it's a really bonkers film um and that coen brothers movie it's it's one of those movies that i love because it's not good but i kind of like it (laughs) (laughs) yeah there's some there's there's something happened there's some stuff and like the The repeated barge gag is good they just like toss bodies into that barge the whole movie it's i don't think i don't think joel and ethan cohen two lovely lovely middle-aged jewish men i don't think they were the ones to write a film with so many black stereotypes in it but yeah yeah to write and direct a film with so many black stereotypes in it not not their tempo Mm. that's what i'll say (laughs) it's not their not their tempo but Uh, either way but yeah this was uh mckendrick's u.s debut right uh yes because if if i remember correctly right it's it's nobody wanted to work for lancaster they're like one thing to direct you another thing to have you be a producer on the movie i also have to answer to you and mckendrick was like i need to get it break in so i'm in baby let's do it I'll do it. Where was where was he in his career at this point, Burt Lancaster? Uh, uh, let's see. I mean, this was a, this was a few years after From Here to Eternity. Yeah, it was um, after From Here to Eternity. It was after like he did a lot of noirs in the forties. Like he did Crisscross. He did um, oh, what's that other one? Uh, this is what I'm blanking on right now. Um, well, this was the same year as Gunfight at the OK Corral, which he did with Kirk oh, yeah. Douglas. Yeah. Um, I mean, he was uh pretty established at this point and uh, i mean i again apparently the guy was not great to work with uh it was not necessarily a great human being but as an actor uh one of my favorites of the era and just um like always such a commanding and interesting presence um through to uh you know his lighter stuff like the swimmer uh he's fantastic in when he's just playing this broken middle-aged man who uh was once sexy and deeply wanted by everybody in the neighborhood and everybody's like mm-hmm. no more mama guy no more um <laughs> or uh local hero where he's just this uh oddball american ceo i mean just the breadth of his career i think he is uh just great Hell yeah. this is before field of dreams right this is before that <laughs> film kevin costner's field just of a- dreams <laughs> Just a few years before that, yeah. Does he play Babe Ruth? I know he's in that. I, it's been so long. These are uh, great questions. And I don't remember. I've also that loves questions. not watched that movie in 20 plus years. Is that a musical? Because I wouldn't be oh, surprised. Oh, it's got, you know, if it isn't, it's, as I say with a lot of these movies, if it isn't already, it's gonna be. Somebody's got the so, rest, yeah. Field of Dreams is Burt Lancaster's final film. It's there his final go. credited film. He played Archibald Moonlight Graham. Everybody's Classic favorite. Role. I know. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, Tony Curtis, who will come up whenever the hell we do our Some Like It Hot episode. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, like, he's... And, I did, and of course, he is the father of Jamie Lee Curtis. Yeah. Um... You know, from our Freaky Friday episodes. Everything's connected. Anybody see Halloween Kills? Uh, Seeing it on Friday. Nice. Ditto. (laughs) 
All right. I'm curious how it is. Here, I've, I've heard, I've heard, I've heard a lot. I've heard. Oh, I peeked into the discourse for this. I'm one. just. Uh, <laughs> People love it and yeah. hate it. Yeah. Those are the two speeds. I'm, I'm just kind of going in and just being like, that'll eh, be what it is. Uh, I, I'm assuming yeah. for a fun time, not necessarily a good you, time. You, I liked the other one. Oh, uh, Freddie, you a fan of the the other Gordon Green Halloween? Uh, you know, I did enjoy it. Um, you know, I think. Uh, what does the kid say? He, he understands the assignment, or at least he did in that movie. Uh, <laughs> and I was like, this was, this was fun. I mean, it's not Halloween, you know, but no movie is going to be Halloween. So uh, wow. uh, yeah. within that legacy, I was like, you know, uh, there have been worse swings at the bat in the, the Halloween franchise. <laughs> sure. Um, oh, right. So I forgot, of course, when this was published in, so this was published in 1950. In Cosmopolitan, the novelette, um, but it went under the title "Tell Me About It Tomorrow" because apparently the editors at Cosmopolitan didn't want a story with the word "smell" in their magazine. <laughs> um, okay, sure, whatever. Um, I guess, yeah, I, li- I like a title with an exclamation point in it. Um, sure. This this doesn't have it, but I, I think "Sweet Smell of Success." Obviously, you got the alliteration in there. Um, I mean, I will say one of the reasons, and this doesn't really make sense, but one of the reasons that I did hold off and watch this for a while is I confused it with how to succeed at business without really trying just because of the success oh. thing. And I was like, mm-hmm. this, is, this is a movie about like somebody climbing the corporate ladder. And then I was like, oh, no, 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 this is a very different thing. <laughs> there's also a movie or there's also a movie musical called The Secret of My Success, right? Yes, it's based on is. the Michael J. Fox film. Yes, there is. There's. Yep. Listen, there's a lot of success in this world. <laughs> Apparently. Guess so. Um, but is it worth it? Well, anyway. So, Burt Lancaster plays J.J. Hunsecker, who's got this column, The Eyes of Broadway. And it's, it's the, it's, you gotta make it in the column. If you don't, if you, if you're not in the, co- like, he's, I mean, it's, it's interesting, right? Because, like, we're in a, we're in an age where newspaper journalism is sort of, like, uh, dying. Uh, dying a slow, painful death. Um... And yeah, we're not, I mean, there aren't really a lot of, and as the sort of, the monoculture is sort of not really a thing anymore, we're not really in an age where there's like a columnist or like, I, I don't know, like, yeah, I mean, I kind of joked about it before-ish, but like, would it be like a Joe, like almost like a Joe Rogan type, right? I feel like that's, he is almost like that kind of like level of podcaster yeah. is almost comparable to like an op-ed columnist from back in the day. Yeah. Uh-oh. Which is sad. Tastemaker. Yeah. Like he, an influencer, yeah. you know, really like. And, and that's the thing, right? Cause it, because it's an op-ed column. So like he doesn't have to be right. They don't have to be right. That's sort of the, the devious thing sure, about right. it. They can just like, put it as a blind item and then like, well, right. I didn't say I was talking about you. You're just, you just took that inference, but I didn't say that. Right. And it, it is interesting. And I mean, it's, it, it's kind of a, sometimes less is more kind of thing. We get more examples of the type of columns he writes in the musical adaptation. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, I, yeah. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, I mean, overall, I think the musical doesn't trust the audience as much. And I think part of that too no. is the context, right? Like this movie came out when these kinds of like institutions still existed and sure. mm-hmm. they didn't need to be explained or provided a context yeah, that a, for that was a frame of reference right. for it yeah. whereas now like you know a contemporary musical doing so on the one hand i get the logic that leads you to that decision making tree but at the same time like you're really really making sure that i understand all this stuff but i watched that yeah. movie and i still understood 
all of it without yeah, yeah. being told like the full. Because I can infer right. from the way that people are talking about one another how the impact that his column has on things, and even just the little snippets you get of it, whether it's when he reads like about the comedian guy, or he's like, I need you to say 20th anniversary of this club. Uh, yeah. So mention that in there. You get mm-hmm. that he's like, you know, would be that he like says something and then, oh, well, I'm going to go there because JJ's talking right. about it. And even like the poster on the wall in his office that has this really cool poster that has those like eyes. And it's like, if JJ didn't say it, it doesn't exist. I think it's what like the thing on the wall says. It's very yeah. cool. And, I was- yeah. and now you have, instead of that, we have like, John Cass talking about like sneaking to eat sausage before his wife sees him, and then like or <laughs> Megan McCardle like listing pies. Like those are the op eds <laughs> we get now. Like not taste making, just being like, is there still Italian food in in New York City? Literally a column well, from Megan well, McCardle. Brian, is there still Italian food in New York City? Pretty sure. Pretty sure there still is Italian. I'll food I'll be there in, in a New few York weeks. City. I can find out if we that, need to know. Yeah. I meet a person on the street, you know, like really just getting in there, investigative journalism. Well, and I will say this is, I mean, this is, a, a, I think I saw, uh, a, 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 speaking of actually very good contemporary uh, tastemakers, uh, Emily Vanderwerf over at Vox. I think she, she's written about, or at least alluded to people writing about sort of how the death of print journalism is leading to uh, a news oasis, if you will. Because now it's like, all of the money only really exists in like national publications and like online Mm -hmm. forums. And there isn't a lot of like local journalism to like really see like what's happening in small towns, in small cities. Like what is, what are the actual like specific like stories? Right. Nobody's covering the local city hall beat anymore. So nobody knows what's happening in city hall or it's owned by Sinclair broadcasting. And it's just like, more likely, you know, by fiat, like this is what you're going to report because everybody's reporting the same. Yeah. Was it Trunk? Is that the thing? Trunk? Wasn't that oh, like Trunk that? was one the, of them? Uh, yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, of course, uh, big news. Uh, you know, Trump's doing his own truth uh, only. Right. Uh, right. Didn't he just announce like Truth Social? Yeah, Truth Social. You know what? Oh, I'm I'm off Twitter now. I don't know any of this. This sounds. Uh, yeah. I want to be on Truth Social so bad. <laughs> that sounds like a ball. Oh, God. Uh, JJ Truth Sucker. That can be your <laughs> that can be your username on uh, Truth Social. Uh, but no, so Tony Curtis plays Sydney Sydney Falco, who who is a press agent who is trying to get his clients in this column, and he's losing clients by the minute because they're not in the column. It's like he's like I, no, he's not getting good press for his for his clients, and so they're. Dropping like flies, and he's got to figure out what the hell he can do. Um, he runs into, he finds JJ. Um, he's, he's he's like trying to call up. He's it's really desperate. It's the desperation in this, and it's like just these let these levels and these layers of like, you know, like JJ knows the power he has, mm-hmm. and like he's like just like dragging Sydney along, and he's dra- dragging everyone along. And there's like the depths that Sydney will go to, and then when Sydney has his, at whenever Sydney has a smidge of power, he'll do the exact same thing that JJ does. Like he will, mm-hmm. like it gets to a, a heat later when he uh, tries to get his uh, friend Rita. Like he's trying to like make that deal with that other press agent, and he's like, yeah, uh, right, and like tricks his friends. He's like, I'll let you 
I'll give you this tip, or like you can do this if you like sleep with my friend, and like it's it's disgusting, it's yeah. despicable. Yeah, it's a film of despicable people. Yeah, no, I, yes. I mean it really is like a. I think there's a really straight line from this to uh, to Nightcrawler, and sort of that like similar, you know, not just the selling your soul part of it, but also the pressure cooker part of it, right? Where it's just like escalating scenario. And somebody getting in, in hotter and hotter water and then watching them like stay just ahead of it long enough to get into the even worse situation. Also, I think uh, Uncut Gems is... Uh, yes. That's what I thought yeah. of too. Yeah. Especially that pressure cooker. Like Sidney Falco's got some Howard yeah. vibes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. And it's yeah. got like that that time, like you got 12 hours or however long he's got from uh, mm-hmm. to, to sort it all out. But um, but yeah, uh, you know, another interesting choice that the musical does is that it goes with a different direction very um, different route we'll talk sure about does. it in a yeah. little bit but yeah i mean like so the it's a the the main sort of like plot element is that jj's sister Susie, who i gotta say is played by susan harrison who is just like amazing i mean like in a film of amazing performances she is like and especially like when you get to the end uh obviously obviously spoilers for sweet smell of success i feel i don't even know why i have to say it if you're listening to this we have to keep saying this there's we're gonna talk about the end of everything we talk about here i never know i know i know no i this is more for people listen we're not gonna spoiler for the rest of this show Okay, if it's in the title and you haven't seen it and you're worried about it, That's all maybe don't listen to the episode. But then, pretty, pretty, pretty straightforward. But then, yeah, you get—I mean, because the whole movie is about Susie uh, dating this uh, jazz guitarist, Steve Dallas, and JJ's not having any of it, and he's like, "Oh, like I'll be able to help you out, Sydney, if you if you break up." This they've already got that deal going at the start of the movie. At, at the start yes, of the movie, exactly. Uh, Sydney thinks that it's already done, and then finds out it's not done, and that's why JJ is keeping him on the outs. And that's nothing mm-hmm. really like about the movie is that they they really start being arrest, right? Like Sydney's yeah. mm-hmm. already fucked up, and he's already <laughs> yes. like in um, damage control mode. There is yeah. not a like stasis act one. We're going to introduce you to his life, and then things are going to fall apart. It's just like we're in the skids, and it's just going to get worse from here. That feel. Mm-hmm. This feels like I. Brian, I feel like there was another musical like this where it was like the the musical like added exposition before the movie. I, again, like as if yeah. we didn't trust it, you know, like as if we had to like f- find our way into the story. I, yeah, that's. I want to say it was applause, but maybe I'm just thinking because they're both from the same time period. Maybe I don't know, but yeah. So this is just a thing that happens where it's like again, like Fred. Fred, you said this. Like, it's no trust in the audience. I think that's sort of the biggest mm-hmm. thing, is that, like, this movie is, like, smart enough to just be what it is, have right. the crackjack uh, dialogue. Yeah, I was going to say, Great Gardens was one that where they, like, act one is sure, entirely... I mean, sure, I mean, yeah, I mean, that's yeah, the that's whole... Too. I mean, that yeah, that literally builds a whole act in to act, act mm-hmm. to, to be the sort of... Pre- pre- yeah, presupposition of whatever the fuck happens to the Beals. Um, but yeah, so... But by the, by the end of the movie, where Susan Harrison, like, thinks that, like, everything's broken and she's, like, trying to kill herself, trying to, like, jump off the ledge, it's just, like... Or is she? But again, just, like, the, like, she's... Just the way she's playing it is just, like... I, it's It's outstanding. And, like, I know it's, like, it's... 
a lot of these films, yeah, of course, are obviously like super male dominated, both in front of the camera and behind the camera. But like, I, she like kind of, I mean, she's the last character you see in the movie. Like the mm-hmm. film literally ends with you following her as she's like walking off as the sun is rising. Like she literally walks away with the movie. <laughs> I think it, I think the movie does like also like every woman that's in a scene is like un in culp, non is innocent of any of the evil going sure. around and like are observing it and like react they're sort of the only ones honestly reacting to any of this depravity that these people whether it's his um his secretary Sally uh Sydney yeah. secretary Sally uh or, Rita um, Re- yeah Rita, Rita the, who, the who like girl, fights yeah. and fights and fights in that scene and um and then uh oh gosh i also like jj's secretary martha. a lot martha yeah um that he's yeah, like schmoozing and stuff and she just she's just like you're such a slime uh, ball get out yeah. of here man it's one of those things that came out of like the haze code right because like before the haze code women could have like jobs and drive movies and then after the Hayes code they're like well that's gonna upset the catholics so uh sure. let's ease up on that yep uh there's i think there's like you know you you had female judges up until like 1931 or whatever and there's just like god as one example or like uh-huh women in, women in professions so it's um and i think that's the nice like one of the interesting things about noir right is that it does give that room to be uh, for women to be interesting characters a lot of agency mm-hmm. but because of the Hayes code is like they have to have a comeuppance or they have to, you know, have a right. learn a lesson, but it's noir. So everybody has to come up like, it's, you know, that's part of the genre <laughs> sure. is that like yeah. bad things happen to you. So, um, so it all kind of like works out. Absolutely. It is, but it is like, it is great that they sort of like, yeah, the female characters sort of act almost as the audience surrogate. Right. Cause it's like, it is, we, this came up on a, another fucking episode where we were, where we were talking about taxi driver or something where it's like, ah, like talking about like everyone, like watching these movies about terrible people, but it's like, yeah, cause they're interesting. Cause the world is filled full of terrible yeah. people. But again, it's, portrayal versus endorsement. Exactly. Right. But again, like yeah. you, but again, you have characters uh, like Susie, like reader um who yeah act as us right they are sort of like they are they are giving us the perspective of like no this is like what you are probably thinking looking at the terrifying machinations uh-huh. of of these industries. right although i mean like Susie again by the end you know she walks away but she has sure. like just not as much as the male leads but she has also started going down that slope right like she is sure entered into the same realm of manipulation as, as the male characters have. And uh, again, yeah, what's he say is like, you're growing up right, or exactly. something yeah. he, as one of the um, last lines, Tony Curtis. And again, I think one of the interesting things between this and the, I'm sorry, I keep just like jumping into the musical, but I, I feel like one of the interesting things is that they really move. I feel like, especially the female characters, but several of the characters into more like, um, traditional ingenue kind of roles to start Mm -hmm. and it's and because here even though like all three of those female characters are observing they're also not you know naive or or surprised by like they're all kind of like this is the game i don't play the game but i'm aware of the game and i felt Mm -hmm. like in the musical they're a lot more like there's a game (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah you're not wrong um I want to talk two other sort of things more from a production standpoint because I, 
I don't, I don't know how much I can really talk about just like the plot because it's. I just I recommend just people just fucking watch it's it. It's so good. Um, yeah, well, please I, watch. I it. gotta say this movie looks gorgeous. Yes. It is like uh-huh. one of like one of my favorite. Like so, the cinematographer is uh, James Wong Ho uh, Howl, um, and it's beautiful. Mm-hmm. It's. I, I don't even know what it is. I mean, it's, I don't know. Maybe I'm just watching too many like modern movies where I'm just, I watch like a black, like a piece of like black and white cinematography and I'm like, oh my God. No, there's, I mean, there's like, part of it is definitely the, uh, how, how, one how is just like a fantastic cinematographer. Um, this movie, this movie turned me on to him and I was like, amazing. Um, what, what else has he done? What are other, other notable um, films he's shot? I well, I'd have to, I'd have to reference. Uh, sure. You caught me flat-footed, can... Ben. They're going to take away my no, Criterion Channel founding member card. Um, <laughs> I can pull it up. I can, I can. Uh, yeah, sure. Pull the. Um, no, I was just going to say, like, uh, you know, I think part of it is his specific cinematography and the way he uses lights and camera movement, but mm-hmm. I think also just of the era. You know, I think there's there was a, a lot of craftsmanship that just kind of went away as cameras got lighter and, and more handheld and sure. um, mm-hmm. and digital meant it was easier to do multiple setups and move around and just sort of like, you know, if you look, especially like the great movies of like the thirties to the fifties, you know, the way that they would use um, staging and choreography and then have the camera move with the choreography to sure. mm-hmm. demonstrate. I mean, it's, it's, it's much closer to the theatrical tradition Whereas now it's so much more about like, we're going to set it up and there's a static composition and then we're going to just do a different shot uh, or we're going to be handheld and moving around. And like, there's just not as much thought put into that element for a lot of directors and and DPs these days, or it's more about just like the composition for the composition and not like, again, this more dynamic way of looking at things. Uh, You know, I think, uh, uh, every every frame of painting has a great Spielberg one shot breakdown where he talks mm-hmm. about how Spielberg kind of continues that tradition where it's it's not like a lot of showy one shots but it's a lot of these same kinds of things where it's like the camera moves so much and the actors move so much within the space that you don't realize that the entire scene was done in one take and then you go back and watch it again you're like oh this was just but it's it's using the language and like to support the storytelling and not to be like. Can you believe I got the steady cam for five minutes? Sure. <laughs> this is great. Yeah. Not to say, I love those shots too, but like Yeah. I think you I think you're right. Like it because because of sort of how intent they had to be super intentional with the yeah. camera just because they weren't they weren't cheap and they were like they I mean, could like only... film was the most expensive part, right? Like just yeah. to produce, shoot, uh process, like edit, uh, all of that was was money. Yeah, and nowadays, like you have, like it's not, it's all, it's all digital, and it's like all focused on like having to like get as much coverage as possible. So there are right. so many, like there's just less, yep. less intention in, in I mean, at least in like major studio filmmaking, right? right. Like that's that's yes. like obviously there are still great examples of contemporary cinematography, but like if we're talking like the the like the big blockbuster films it's like it's mostly digital and even a lot of it is like not even like cinematography quote unquote it's like almost just computer animation right it's right. just like yes. it's like previs like shit like that right and i think the thing for sweet small success is the uh on location shooting uh like of, yeah yeah the way it uses new york is phenomenal mm-hmm. um and i love the like mid 50s to early 60s when 
on location was just like really starting to take off in American cities and it, it just captures a, a moment very, it's, it's great. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I think another great one is um, the Crimson Kimono, which is a, like a 60s noir set in San Francisco. Okay. And again, it was like a very early uh, on location kind of shooting thing. And it's just the same sort of like, this is really like what the city looked like in this moment. Um, cool. It's, uh, that one's a little bit more, French New Wave, I guess. But anyway, I'm sorry. I'm yeah, like, whatever. I'm I love how I love now. how he captures. <laughs> no, I like how he captures light, and especially like the lights in Times Square yeah. in Manhattan. Like whether it's that view from the like sort of balcony at JJ's mm-hmm. apartment, or even just when they're walking down and like seeing just the el- changes the the differences in elevation between like down low where the jazz club is, down by the tracks, and being so dark and shadowy. And then he walks up those stairs after he like points um, Dallas out to uh, Detective Kello and then walks up and then the camera kind of pans around and it's bright lights of like Manhattan where he's returning to. Totally. Uh, it's, it's, I, and there's a lot of like amazing locations in this. Yeah. I mean, you get, you get Times Square, you get like the club where Steve Dallas is playing with the Ch- the, the Chico Hamilton uh, quintet, quartet. Chico Hamilton, fucking great. Mu- the music in this thing is is also like off the chain. It's it's oh, yeah, mm-hmm. like the- that yeah. I say that that central slinky score, like and the way it can be repurposed mm-hmm. for the need, right? Where it's like sexy or seductive or tense or exciting, like that that same motif just keeps coming back and back again and again. That horn sting that we hear yeah. a lot, yeah. Elma Bernstein, the best, <laughs> like who also did uh, Airplane. And Ghostbusters. Wow. And Ghostbusters. Wow. <laughs> I mean, what ta- a trio of films. Talking about titans of cinema, Ghostbusters. Um, Man. But yeah. There's your theme with uh, last week's episode. Yes, Bill Murray. There's the through line. <laughs> but no, Hail but no, his score here is like tremendous. Um, mm-hmm. He creates just a beautiful atmosphere. And there's like, there's the scene where they're like on the stage of a theater and they're just like shooting out to the audience. Yeah. There's the depth that you get in this film, right? It's, and that's mm-hmm. something that you lose a lot when you're not actually shooting on location. It's like, you lose so much of that depth and it's yeah. just seeing just like all, even I mean, there's the scene where like uh, Dallas and Susie are out like behind the club and it's just like them. Yes. Yeah, it's like them like in like an alleyway, but even just like them, like in the alley with, the the night sky and the lights and just like then just like the layers of the buildings behind them it's just like i don't know even a shot like that it's just like it's it's astounding it really is i don't know agree it's, it's a good movie that's that's my hot take it's a good movie it if i recall correctly it didn't do great it didn't do it was a box office failure yeah, uh, I mean, I think, like, I can't remember if Lancaster's company did much more after this, but it was, like, a big reason that it ultimately folded was because, like, this was uh, not a success. Man. Yeah, so more like sweet smell of, you know, it's, uh, it stinks. It stinks! <laughs> it's, that, that's yeah, what yeah. the critic... If I was a critic back then, I would have said, it doesn't stink. <laughs> And that that would have gotten me the Pulitzer. Um, yeah, I mean, <laughs> I think, I yeah, I think again, like it's it is a sour film. Like yeah. it's, I mean, that's and that's it has to be because that's this that's just what it is. That's what it's about. And I think just 
don't know, maybe just everyone at the time just wasn't up for that. They weren't up for seeing Burt Lancaster and Tony Curtis in such villainous, vile roles. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was pretty bleak. And no redemption. Yeah, really, yeah no, it's like they, like they, yeah, JJ sits in his, in his ivory tower still, and uh, Sydney gets the shit beat out of him. And, right. and I just want to yep. say, that's how the movie ends. He gets the shit beat out of him. That's it. Yes. <laughs> I just right. want to put a That's just want to put a pin in that. Right. No, it is. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Everybody sells their soul, right? Like that's the by the end of it. Like even you know, again, going back to these observing characters too. Like right, like Rita is dragged into it by Sydney, but also like she is convinced of the value of this exchange, right? And yeah. like, mm-hmm. um, and so everybody down the line. But just by proximity to Sydney and JJ, like except for Dallas, I guess Dallas is really the yes. only uh, uh, one who, who keeps his nose clean. But in also, just process like, breaks it. also gets the shit yeah. beat That's out of true. him. That's true. Let Dallas smoke his reefer. Whatever. <laughs> I know. I love. Oh, that. Yeah. I love that they they label him a weed smoker. Right. No, like, he's done. <laughs> yeah, he's done. Nobody'll touch him now. You know what? I, I think the script, the screenplay is excellent. Oh, my gosh. Um, I mean, the dialogue is so... Uh, yeah, of course, you have great, amazing, like, noir lines. Like, uh, I wrote down some more. Some more. Um, uh, 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 oh, gosh. Uh, well, I wrote down a couple, like... Uh, what am I, a bowl of fruit, a tangerine that peels in a minute? Also, um, <laughs> don't leave me in a minor key, baby. I loved, uh, uh, where was his wife? I don't know. It was a big apartment. Sure. Yes. Yeah, that's pretty good. That's when a fellow really needed a friend, and I won't forget his initials, JJ. I like that one. <laughs> I a know. Lot. We got uh, um, but it's a new racket. I never thought I'd make a killing off someone's uh, someone's integrity. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What Good watch one. out for this guy. I heard he's a press agent. <laughs> <laughs> uh but Clifford Odette's like is listed first in the screenwriting yeah. credit. Um and uh, he obviously is a playwright. He uh, would be known for Waiting for mm-hmm. Lefty, um, Golden Boy. Awake and um, Sing. He yep. was um, Awake and Sing is one of the other big ones. He, uh, he, was, a, um, he was like a light, Marxist light uh, a bit during the time. He was a member of the uh, American Communist Party for a couple years um, and then would later, um, and, and Waiting for Lefty is basically like a piece of agitprop theater that yeah. was made to be performed at union halls and stuff to like garner support for unionization and for um, pushing people further left and the Communist Party specifically. Um, however, he did go on to, um, he was pulled in front of the House uh, on Americans uh, Activity Committee, however, HUAC that uh, McCarthy was running. And, um, uh, not quite as horrible as Eli Kazan, who named, who snitched on all his comrades, but he he didn't add any names to that list, but he basically confirmed all uh, of those, and he kind of tried to. He and Kazan apparently had a deal where they were going to name each other so that they could like oh, wow. get out, so that they wouldn't have to um, like snitch on their friends. And then Kazan went back on that, of course, and um, fuck him. <laughs> uh, and uh, but uh, he he did not. Uh, he cooperated enough that he didn't face any jail time, but he was still kind of blacklisted and his leftist uh, friends hated him. So he kind of got, you know, the worst of both worlds, which is, you know, don't snitch is my advice there. Um, (laughs) But I do think that his, his, his plays and stuff before that are pretty important. And especially in like a um, Marxist tradition of uh, agitprop and are a good thing um, to look at uh, as far as the history of like, 
leftist propaganda in America goes. Yeah. And uh, Waiting for Lefty's a great play. Golden Boy's a great play. It is yeah. wild that he, he co-wrote this movie, and then Eli Kazan, like I said before, directed Face of the Crowd, both films about, again, like, almost about sort of, like, fascistic uh, implementation of media, and, like, yet two yeah. of the, the, the people behind both of them, yeah, like you said, were part of, like, this big, like, blacklist, like, shame. Yeah. Like, that's, it's... That stinks. That's all I gotta say. That it is. Stinks. It is. Uh, I, I think that, like I say, I think Clifford Oditz is is that's a lot more complicated case sure. than Kazan, who was who just you know snitched on his friends and was rewarded in Hollywood for it, and then he made a movie about it, saying that basically was him saying, "No, it was the right thing. I'm not bad," sure. you know, <laughs> on the waterfront. Sure. But, um, but he, uh, he, uh, yeah, I don't know. It's interesting. He could have been a contender. Film. I'll give him that. <laughs> Uh, yeah, no, it was definitely like uh, the first time I watched it, this movie, I was overwhelmed by how many, like all the elements are just singing, right? And I'm like working in mm-hmm. together to make a great movie. And it wasn't until the second time around that I really keyed in on that screenwriting. And um, and yeah, like you said, the dialogue it just pops like so many people talking in metaphor throughout and just mm-hmm. like talking around yeah. the thing in such great evocative language. Yes, that's how much my husband loves me. He buys me this New York State champagne. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I love that uh, lady. Well, and, and in that scene, like, <laughs> one of the great touches, right, is that like um, that first columnist he talks to is uh, talking about his bilious life, and then Sydney immediately re- repurposes that line and turns around and sells it to Steals the other that one. Line. And it's just like yeah. that great little detail of how much of a, a, a hustler and and how Kitty is and into that. Um, mm. And then, uh, something else I keyed into this time too is the. And I'm sure this comes from Odessa's like background in, in theater, but like how many of the scenes have great games of the scene, right? Like again, going to that mm-hmm. scene, the uh, the horse race that the wife's trying to figure out. Mm-hmm. And so he's trying to blackmail this guy and his wife is meanwhile is like trying to figure out which horse to bet on. And so they, <laughs> each of them keep trying to leverage the horse race conversation to get at the blackmail conversation that's the uh, subtext for that. Or like the center, just girlfriend, uh, or uh, don't I know you from oh, somewhere? Yeah, during when he when he brings it back to Rita, uh, like yeah. every single one of those scenes has like this great game that is keeping the scene interesting and letting it pop, even as it also mm-hmm. lets the subtext of like the actual power dynamics play out. Mm-hmm. JJ, good JJ movie. to New York. I love the sturdy town. Me to this movie. I love the sturdy movie. Uh, I do. It's it's a good movie. I recommend people watch it. Um, I don't know. Come to Chicago. You can borrow my Criterion Blu-ray. Um, not, I, you know what? No. I rescind that offer immediately. Um, now, Fred, you made a claim. You said that all of the elements in this movie sing. Well, not yet they don't, because it would take another almost... That was your fault, buddy. Uh, Almost 50 years later, um, Sweet Smell of Success uh, stank its way to Broadway. uh, And yeah, you're... It's so funny. It's so funny. And by funny, I mean sad. Um, It was just weird reading this thing. It was an absolute bizarre... Uh, Kate, because I'll say I'll say up front before we sort of dig into sort of like what they changed, what our thoughts are, what the hell is going on. So the mu- the music's by Marvin Hamlish. The music's by Marvin Hamlish. We know him. Uh, we love him. He's no longer with us. Uh, he obviously did the music for a chorus line. Uh, 
he did the music for films like The Sting. Uh, he's a claimed uh, composer, musician. Um, and I mean, I'll say that I'm a, I'm an absolute sucker for this kind of score. Like it really, mm-hmm. it, like there's some really great numbers in here, um, regardless of like their context and sort of what they're doing and what their function is. I think there's just some like on their own, just like really gorgeous numbers. Uh, the the lyricist here is Craig Cornelia, who is most famous for. He's one of the many songwriters on the documentary musical Working. Um, he wrote a lot mm-hmm. of songs for that show. Um, and I, I mean, I'll say, I'll say up front that the, the songs are sort of, it, as, ha- as happens in a lot of these, they're sort of like the, the sort of my, my main sort of like guiding lights for being like, there's something here that I don't know. That, I'm, yeah. I'm curious what your thoughts are just on, on the songs themselves for this musical. Uh, well, I'm a, a musical Philistine, probably. I was, about to, to, uh, so I was about to say, yeah, you are, you are musicals aren't really your your forte friends no i mean i'm definitely a like uh you know the most well known are, are more in my orbit and i do enjoy them when they click for me but i'm not uh neither knowledgeable nor like have a strong yeah i don't know it's <laughs> sure. like going back to like right noir <laughs> like even though, like an okay noir movie i'll i'll get a lot out of and i'll enjoy and there's a lot of like technical elements of it that i can but with a musical, if it like if it doesn't like click for me, then I'm just like, oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> and so, and and so for me for this, it did not grab me. Yeah. So I cannot yep. really <laughs> say much else about it. No, that's fine. No, that's 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 fair. Uh, Brian, I think you were sort of. It, it seems to sound like you were maybe in, in a little bit of agreement. So I'm I'm curious what your thoughts. Yeah, are. I think the music's good, and I mean I think Craig Cornelia's lyrics are pretty good for the most part. I mean, it's that's not the problem. <laughs> I have with this musical. No, Neither of those no, things are really the problem. No, the, the, the problem um, is uh, is our friend John Guare, um, who Fred Fred, you know you know who John Guare is, I think. Yes, you know of him. He's a he's a well known playwright. He wrote Six Degrees of Separation. He wrote uh, uh, The House of Blue Leaves. Sure. Um, and of course, he wrote uh, a little known play called the general of hot desire oh my god <laughs> I thought about, Which, this is a uh, a play from our college days that i have yes not thought about in 15 years that's not a lot that, not that long 10 years <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was 2010 it was 2010 um it's not a great play it's like a bunch of like students trying to like analyze a shakespearean sonnet and then they end up like acting out like a bible story it's a really bizarre piece of playwriting i mean you know it was honestly the it was college it was was college college. what i remember from it is more the interpersonal conflicts from our theater department and not the like (laughs) drama and such and not the content of the play so i i'll take your word for it but yes it's it's a bizarre play um but and and yeah i guess so i mean it's if you're looking at like early 2000s writers you probably see this and you're like oh uh like and i'm sure the movie at this point was probably like uh sort of a rising classic right it's like again like almost like 50 years since release i'm sure there's sort of been a little bit of a cultural turnaround um since its initial release so it's like oh movie that people love um 
Marvin Hamlish, this guy Craig Carnelia, and John Guare, it was probably like, yeah, this thing's probably gonna rip. Like, I'm sure there was a lot of like mm-hmm. early buzz about it. Um, I would Im- I would imagine, but you know, then it then it comes out, and I'll say critics also were kind of in alignment with us. They were like, huh. <laughs> Yeah, I, I should be good. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, it's, it's John Lithgow's good. I was about in the say, original, it's, it's, it's good uh, enough. Recording. It's good enough. He's the only winner yeah, from I, it. I was about to say, it's good enough to give John Lithgow a Tony, but not really mm-hmm. anything outside of that. I mean, so, like, we, Fred, yeah, go ahead, Fred. Well, no, and that's one of the interesting things to me about this, like, from the get go, is that it, it reframes everything from JJ, right? Like, yeah. The yeah. movie JJ's a looming presence that is being built. You know, like I always think of Moliere, right? It's like the the great like everybody's talking about Moliere and building up building him up before he arrives on the scenes. But you sure. like, you've got anticipation, and they do the same thing here with JJ, where everybody's talking about how like powerful and terrible and, and this that, and the other thing, and how desperate everybody is. Uh, and meanwhile, here it's like from the get go, it's like the JJ's got control and he's driving the plot it's, and it's he's the JJ kind of the main character. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. It's, he, he is, I'm pretty sure he's the first character who speaks in the yeah. show. Like he, fra- he, he both opens and closes the show. He is the literal mm-hmm. frame for this story, which yeah, like you don't, I don't think he shows up until like 10, 15 minutes into the film. Right. At least, yeah. Yeah, it's like, yeah, like and Brian Darcy James, who I suppose is the Tony Curtis of early 2000s Broadway. I don't know. I get the casting, yeah. Yeah, I mean, he, he certainly looks a lot like Tony Curtis. Uh, there's a, definitely like a visual resemblance. Um, great singing voice. I'll say like At the Fountain is my favorite song on the on the album. Just a great little, great Especially little Especially by Spotify song. listens, you're, you're not alone in that sentiment. Yeah. <laughs> It's good. It's a route. It's musically and just like performance wise. It's just a banger of a. Th- it's like I, I I listened to it and I was like, well, that's going in my book. I'm I'm finding the sheet music to that. That thing's fucking rips. Um, but yeah, I think that is a the definite sort of like strange equation. I mean, I guess you know you get John Lithgow, and then you are like, okay, well. You know he's very famous. <laughs> he's a very he's a very big actor. This John Lithgow. Um, how can we make sure this is a show that he would wanna star in eight times a week? You know that's sure. that that can sometimes be the the folly of these things, right? You know, like you you create a sure. and again this and this is this is all speculation, but it's just like yeah, like maybe it was just like you know you you get an actor with that much clout with that much draw, and it's like well then yeah, the show has to sort of be up that character's alley in, in a lot of ways um, to the mm. detriment of the entire fucking script. Yeah. I don't know. It's just an interesting, uh, yeah. And, and always I'm for all this, anytime something doesn't work, uh, I'm always like, you know, what the gravity of money and, yeah. uh, and yes. especially in these kinds of these adaptations where you're talking about IP and somebody having to like, you know, really invest money from square one. It's not like we started yeah. with the script and then we got funding and then we had to change some things to, but everybody kind of knew what the script was at the start. It's like, you no, know, somebody went, I have this property. You do what I say to make this property into, uh-huh. um, into something that we can stage. And so, you know, I, I'm always hesitant to like cast blame in, in that sure. situation and sort of say like, who knows what, what conversations are happening. But it's also interesting to kind of think through that, you know, yeah. So like JJ's framing it, 
Sydney is like I said is is more of a ingenue where you're like <laughs> yeah watching him get drawn and he's not good at his job either which is really interesting <laughs> yes. like he's yeah. just bad at his job JJ picks him because he's weak and he's like I can put you under my thumb and then the and, and then like you're talking about like the first act is all prologue to the movie pretty much mm-hmm. yeah and then act two like once the reveal uh, that that his sister his sister's dating Dallas uh, which is also weird because then it's like Act two has all the great lines from the movie. Yes. Which they know are great lines because they like really foreground them. But then act one doesn't have that same like level of of uh, dialogue. And so you're just kind of like, uh-uh. where was this the first 30, 30 yeah. pages? I know. Um, it's, well, it's and it's so it's a, few, a few a few points to sort of bounce off of that. So it's it's not like this is like, again, this is like a, a film that like people love, but this isn't like mrs doubtfire right this isn't like sure this isn't like a thing with like a lot like there's there's brand recognition there's ip recognition but this isn't like a huge property so there isn't like they could have they could do whatever they want there isn't like some kind of like loyalty in that sort of grand sense and the other sort Mm -hmm. of um, fascinating thing is that ernest lehman was a producer of the show Right, I saw, yeah, and I saw that it was like he he barely said that this was like closer to his original vision. Yeah, of the piece. which I'm like, I like the other one, but yeah, right. I'm sorry. Yeah, and yeah, how old was he when he was producing? Oh, he was still this? working. Like he was getting offers pretty late into his career. He was like wow. turning stuff down um, before this, and but he was like, I'll come out to like set the record straight on what I really wanted to do with this. I guess. Um, yeah, uh, I, I think that's like, the other thing too. Eighty-seven. Yeah, uh, I think, 87, wow. I think it's the other thing with adaptation, right, is like what you respond to as like you individually respond to and love about a piece is not going to be the same thing that somebody else responds yeah. to. And, you know, I mean, obviously like the dictates of the market in a capitalist society meant that a lot of people didn't respond to the vision that they were responding to in this. But like on an individual, like judging a fellow artist's choices, uh, you know, again, it sort of goes back to like, okay, the, the things that I love don't seem to be the things that you loved about it or found interesting about it and so you just went in like this different direction that just is not as interesting to me as as a like uh, as a um as a viewer Mm -hmm. i find it wild that they try like several times in the musical adaptation to redeem sydney's character or not quite redeem him but show that he has like that he could make that choice or that like he's, you know, oh, he's really wrestling That's with just... it when in the film, I don't feel like there's, I feel like there's only the very end where he's asked to kill yeah. him. Is there any like hesitation on his part, especially the Rita scene? I don't feel like there's a lick of well, hesitation. That's the, thing, the Rita the scene film. doesn't, I don't think makes sense because it is a slightly compressed version of the movie scene, but yeah. it largely plays out the mm-hmm. same but it doesn't make sense because it's not the same buildup. It's not the same uh, payoff. And so like it works great as a scene still because it's a great scene, but it sure. doesn't track with like the setup that goes into it. Uh, and I think you're totally right that, that Sydney's Sydney's arc, like even right up to the end of act one, he is still like uh, Susan comes to him and says, lie for me to JJ. Yeah. And, he gets nothing out of it and he says yes. So the first half of the play, he is still like a good guy. And then JJ starts putting the screws to him. Yeah. And then there's like a one half of act two is him like starting to morally crumble. And then he like redeems himself at the end. 
And so his arc gets like then he, compressed then he, then to this he gets really. Killed. Then he gets killed, but he. I know it doesn't make any sense. But he, like at least you know, but then it's like, yeah, I don't know that that is um, its own thing. But I, I think you're totally right that just like his his arc doesn't track anymore because it the setup doesn't. doesn't match with the movie beats. Again, yeah. it's, again, it's one of those. It's it's almost like a. I, Brad, I hate to say this. It's almost a Beetlejuice problem where they try to like both enact what happened in the original film, but then add stuff on or like extrapolate in ways that are counter to what's actually happening in the film, right? It's like, oh, we gotta we gotta have these similar beats, we gotta have these similar events, but we're not actually putting in we're adding in things or changing things that are actively detrimental to those beats. Right. And I think that scene also like Rita doesn't make sense anymore because, you know, she's just in love with Sydney. Like in the movie, they're like a casual thing, but here, right. And her job's on the line, right? Like they set up very early on that she has stakes in the situation because she's going to get fired and she is looking for a way to get out of that. And so Sydney is able to leverage that in that scene. But here, it's just like, you don't want to be a cigarette girl all your life, do you? And it's just like, yeah. all of a sudden, he, he like wins her over in one line. And again, because of the fact that he's also not been good at his job for the entirety of the, the musical, I'm just kind of like, well, how is he suddenly able to like wheel and deal like this when I've seen nothing of that so far? Yeah. And yeah, I think her being his his girlfriend, like explicitly and him... Like that in some ways makes him more reprehensible, but also once again, the musical that he has this moment of like, Ooh, should I do this or not? Where, like I say, I just, I don't see that at all. in right. It's again, also the Falcone, that's not in the movie, no, right? No, 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 yeah. no, no, no. The drop, the make the O thing. Rando. What the hell is that? That's such a Mongo, Drago, DiMaggio, keep the O. Do, 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 do. Oh, whatever. I still like that song. It's great. Whatever. I, yeah, fine. Oh, yeah. Totally. <laughs> just, just, what the hell's going on I know. here, Falcone? It's, I mean, again, like, that's the, right, that's the problem with making your act one, uh, like, yeah, again, now it's, it's, it's bringing in other episodes. Yeah, it's almost like Grey Gardens. Yeah, it's like act one is just, like, the prologue to Sweet Smell of success yeah so it's just like you so this musical does one of my favorite things in heavy quotes favorite things where it ends on a scene and then act two just picks up from that same moment why did we take it into mission why did we do that bizarre Uh, it's an odd duck also manages to take an hour, 45 minute movie and make it like two and a half hours long. My favorite thing to complain <laughs> about on this show. It's also like it gets longer, it gets flatter, right? Like all the, yeah. all the complicated parts get smoothed out. Not just in yep. how it's like really trying to explain things to you. I mean, another example I think is Matt. It's, it's not, it's, it's Madge. It's his JJ's assistant, right? Yeah. And uh, I think I said the wrong name earlier, mm-hmm. but um, you know, she gets one scene, but it's a really interesting scene because she has her own agency and she's like, JJ doesn't want you to see this, but fuck him. Like you're, you know, you're, you're fun to have around. So I'm gonna let you take a peek and like get ahead a little bit. Yeah. And in the musical, like she posed, she pops up, but it's just to repeat like JJ's line. Like there's no, she's not doing anything. Like it's just, I just feel like there's a lot of choices like that. Uh-huh. So probably to make room for the music, right? Where it's just yeah. like, well, it's and I mean that's the whole just fucking problem, and it's and I, I know this is the same drum we beat over and over and over again, but right, it's like you're taking a singular 
film and you're turning it into a broad piece of commercial musical theater like you're gonna you're gonna flatten it out you're gonna broaden it out you're gonna take the bite out of it that's sort of the biggest thing that i like lament about this musical adaptation is that the original film is so acidic and it's so sickening uh and the musical again yeah it tries to like sprinkle in these like moments of redemption for these characters who frankly mm-hmm. don't deserve it right no not at all i mean if they you know i think if act two was not indebted to the movie and sure. they just didn't have that title like there could be a successful version of this the show yeah just call it something else i don't know paid off for its own like you know was setting up its <laughs> own thing but yeah it's just it, it as soon as it has to like be like and then here are the beats of the movie and it's just like this doesn't try like another one is um the the big Dallas JJ confrontation doesn't make sense anymore either because Dallas is like doesn't want a press agent but also is willing to roll along with JJ big upping him so that because it makes Susan happy for all of Act One so then you're like all of a sudden you're you have a problem with this now that <laughs> sure. that JJ has got going to put in a good word for you and like the both. Um, Sydney and JJ have to like keep provoking Dallas to get him to the point where he sets off. Whereas from the start of that scene in the movie, because it's been very clear and consistent that like Dallas does not like JJ, it, it's just like a ticking time bomb where it's like, this is going to go off any second. Whereas in the musical, they have to like work Dallas up to the point where he finally like is actually angry, never mind like angry enough to do something about it. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I'm not going to keep just. <laughs> listening to things where i'm like I don't, these two these no. two parts don't quite you know mesh no it's it's true um it's it is true so uh as we alluded to before yeah so at the at the uh 56th annual tony awards uh held in 2002 uh this thing yeah john lithgow he got a best actor tony award good for him uh he beat out i mean he didn't have a lot of strong competition i'm gonna say that uh he beat out uh so this was the thoroughly modern millie year um, another fe- okay. future episode. Um, actually, this is a this is a bananas year for best musical. Um, Let's hear right. it. So we got Sweet Smell of Success. We got Thoroughly Modern Millie, which definitely should not have won, but we'll litigate that when we do that episode. You got Urinetown, a a stellar oh, yeah. piece of musical theater. And then, of course, Bran, you lamented about this musical last week. Here oh we go again. It's Mamma Mia. <laughs> oh, oh, okay, yeah. Here we do go again. Yes. Um, don't let me. Don't get it wrong. I actually really love Mamma sure. Mia, but I didn't know that. I just didn't want to be in it. Fair. Uh, I didn't know the Thoroughly Modern Millie was a <laughs> film first, and then a, oh, it I, was. I assumed that that was a, a stage to screen, not the other way. No, it was a Julie Andrews picture. Oh no! I mean, I've seen the. I just assumed oh, the film sure. oh, no, was. No, no, no. The, Gotcha. No, no, no. The mu- the movie is its own thing. Huh. I know. We're going to talk it's about really... it. I've never seen the movie. When did they, like, did they adapt that right away? Was that new? No, was it, just... it was like decades later. Yeah. Interesting movie. <laughs> with a lot of baggage. Yeah. And they kept that baggage. They kept the baggage. Yeah. Oh, yes. Yeah. Came right okay. along on the airport conveyor belt, that baggage. They just picked it up and just... Took it to their next destination. <laughs> um, but no, John Lithgow beat out uh, Gavin Creel in Thoroughly Modern Millie. He beat out John McMartin as the narrator in a revival of Into the Woods. And he beat out uh, Patrick Wilson in Oklahoma. 
played Curly. Um, oh, yeah. Star of uh, Best Friends to Mike Flanagan himself, Patrick Wilson. Uh, and John Cullum was in Urinetown as Caldwell B. Cladwell. Um, mm. But, yeah, I mean, yeah. And, of course, yeah, Urinetown won, like, most of the technical awards um, well-deserved. And then Millie won musical because... <laughs> a lot of ra- a lot of racist people on that committee back in 2002 apparently um yeah i don't know fun show sweet it's you're in town's a great show we can never talk about it um because it is very good and not based on a movie um sweet smell of success listen final parting words the movie rips it's sickening uh-huh. and uh clever and just beautifully shot beautifully made beautifully performed um and if you want to listen to some of the songs from the musical just go listen to them like it's a nice it's a nice jazzy listen to have in the background and nothing Mm -hmm. more and and just don't ask any other questions than that uh fred do you have any other final thoughts just i don't know just on on sweet smell of success in totality Oh, I think I did, but I, I lost it. Uh, Maybe I'll come yeah. back. Yeah, I mean, again, I just want to like read her. Like, uh, I think the first act is a could be a good first act for a different ending. I mean, I guess we didn't really talk about the ending. Oh, that yeah, much, well, I said he dies. He gets killed yeah, by dies. Detective yeah. Kello, uh, Kello, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> I think there's like, I don't know. I, I can see how they're trying to make that math work. And I can like kind of get the logic of the choices, but I think it's also, I guess my, my one of the thought is like, is there, I have not watched, listened to the musical of uh, Sunset Boulevard, but I just feel like noir as a, as a genre is just deeply incompatible with the musical format and like what the musical format demands of its characters and its storytelling I mean, I think especially in the Broadway context, I don't know, maybe yeah. there's there's like a, a off-off-Broadway like way to do noir that is not just pastiche, but like is legitimately, or new noir that is legitimately like true to the, the style. But yeah. uh, mm-hmm. my understanding of, of, of the musical format, I'm just, I, 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 and so I don't know, I, I am curious your thoughts about, I'm sure we'll get a full episode about it at some point, but just a brief, brief, uh, preview your thoughts on the sunset boulevard like is it possible for it to work well i mean i'll say i mean brian i'm not familiar with i'm not as familiar with sunset boulevard in in either format honestly that's actually a a big to be honest a big uh spot that i need to get filled in yeah yeah, yeah. you're gonna love the movie i'm excited i mean i I, listen i love billy wilder like i'm gonna love i know i'm gonna fucking love that thing um but yeah, and then I'll say I was I actually was thinking about this before, like if there are any other sort of film noir musical musical noirs, I guess. Right. Not even necessarily like a screen to stage adaptation, just in general, like um, a musical that is also truly a noir. Noir. I can't. I can't think of one. Um, there is another. Uh, I have to double check this. Brand, were you going to say something? No, I was just going to say I think that it's possible. I think conceptually it is possible, but you have to be willing. And this show should have been the one to do it. In my opinion, but you have to be willing to accept that most, if not all of your characters are not redeemable and are deeply flawed. And I think that a lot of music of Broadway producers have a problem with that. And that's why I think that you, I think you would probably have like much more success with a smaller show in an off Broadway or off loop kind of uh, a setting where people are sort of expecting that 
Um, and you could still tell that story with music. It's just, I, I do think whenever, like you were talking about before, when this much money gets involved and this wide appeal is what they need to go for, people start not trusting their audience and, and they start um, trying to redeem characters or making like, well, we've got to have a good guy sort of an attitude, you know. So, so I'll I think say, you have to avoid that. Before we cap this off, I'll say the two examples I can think of, and they're like skirting on the noir genre. Um, there's mm-hmm. a feature episode, which I remembered that we have to cover. There's a movie called No Way to Treat a Lady, which is almost like a comedy noir mm. um, that okay. was adapted into a musical comedy uh, with Rod Steiger and Lee Remick. Um, it's based on a William Goldman novel um, about an actor turns uh, murderer <laughs> and the detective who tries to capture him. Um, it was adapted into an off-Broadway musical. Um, and that's, again, that's more of a comedic noir. So, again, that's not even... Right, just, like, I can see the pastiche. Well, yeah. 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 The only other one I can really think of, and it's almost like not even a full musical, it's a section of a musical, is Bran... I, maybe, you know, the See What I Want to See, the Michael John Lacusa musical. Um, it's a, not familiar so it's, at all. A, it's essentially like two and a half musicals in one. The first act is almost like, yeah, it's it's a film noir version of Rashomon. And that's like what, mm, and that's okay. what the first act of this musical is. And it's, yeah, it is Got pretty it. despicable and like pretty vile. Um, so that's the only other example I can think of. Um, if listeners out there can think of any other, not even musicals, just good noir theater, I'd be curious. But I mean, musicals obviously would be great. I'd just, I'm just having trouble thinking of them. But yeah, I'm, I'm curious if it's possible. I'm curious if the earnestness of the musical theater genre mm-hmm. can mesh well with the sort of despicable nature of the of the noir genre. I don't know. Maybe that's maybe that's the future that we need. Maybe that's the future liberals want. Um, I don't know. Um, I don't know. Don't worry about it. Um, the Lion News Media. Yes. <laughs> That crooked news media. Fred Pelzer, before we go, um, as we know you're a huge lover of musical theater, as you attested to repeatedly on this show, but we have to end this episode like we do every other episode. It's like Passover that way. Um, Or whatever, fuck it. I mixed up my Jewish (laughs) metaphor. So Fred, at the end of every episode, we ask our guest a very important question, and here it is. If you could adapt any movie into a musical that has not been adapted already, what movie would you choose? Uh, yeah, I had like six months uh, to think about this when you first asked me on the show and, and now. So <laughs> I had a lot of thoughts of different different things. Um, but because it wound up being October and this is coming out next week before Halloween, I'm going to go with a, a spooky option. And then I also thought of something yeah. during this I'm going to toss out there as an Ooh. interesting little... Um, yeah, and I, and I might pick... I, a lot of my the picks that I'll be going through, you know, I think when you pick something that you love, I think you're kind of setting yourself the same traps as the big money picking a popular piece of IP where you're like, I am now indebted to those things. And, but sure. I love the thing because it was made for a movie. And so those things will not necessarily translate to, I'll just say I picked a movie that I like, but don't love, um, which is uh, Cronenberg's The Fly. Uh, oh! Which is essentially Phantom of the Opera. <laughs> Yeah, uh, and it's a melodrama, and it's just a couple of characters uh, in a love triangle as one turns into a flag. Um, 
Also, mm-hmm. there's, you know, Brindle on the high beams. Like, that's a great musical number right there. Just some nice gymnastics happening. Uh, yes. Nice interpretive dance representation of his new fly abilities. Um, Creepy puppet baby dream. Yes. Creepy dream. And then, you know, a little bit of, like, stage magic of quick changes as he metamorphs further and further into a fly and you know maybe a puppet maybe who knows i think there's some interesting like he'd even have the jekyll and hyde thing of him like turning from side to side like and you know <laughs> he's got fly on one side and he's all like hot jeff goldblum on the other right side. but it's got the like arms attached to the top arm so it just, yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> yes yes uh, yes oh yeah so i, I think that'd be a, an interesting pick you know i i i, I always really enjoy cronenberg especially because his ideas are very like mm-hmm. weird and his movies are very sprawling and i think mm-hmm. The Flies is most loved movie because it is a lot more like disciplined, but that's actually one of the reasons that it's one of his least interesting for me is filmography. So, I, but I think it also, mm-hmm. because it's so simple, lends itself well to expansion into into a musical. Yeah, uh, so that's my pick for something that I think would succeed. Uh, but then in this conversation, I was also thinking of another uh, press based noir, Ace in the Hole, Billy Wilder's Ace in the sure. Hole, which is a movie I love. I think it is a great movie, um, but I think could have a better chance of making that jump in part because of Floyd Collins, which I only know about because a friend was in a production of that in Chicago. Otherwise I would not know what that, that musical is, but I'm like, Floyd there's Collins. been a musical about people trapped in a, you know, about miners trapped in a, a, a thing, uh, in a hole. So just adding in this, this extra element of, um, of the Kirk Douglas role. And, uh, I, I think it could, uh, I think it could work. I don't know. I, it just came to me while we were having this conversation. So yeah. I'm just tossing it out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And listen, anything Floyd Collins adjacent, I will cheer because I fucking love that show. And that's another show about mm-hmm. how stupid the media is. That right? That's another musical about how yeah. like I mean, abhorrent, it, how the media takes advantage of people's tragedy. Right. I mean, Ace yeah. in the Hole is essentially like that from primarily from the reporter's point of view. But it's essentially Gosh. the same. Okay. Cool. Um, right. And the and the reporter like also has been well since I watched Floyd Collins, so I, this might be more akin to that. But the the reporter is like purposely making them go about the rescue in the worst way possible, so that he can draw more narrative juice out of it. Mm-hmm. Um, mm. And so it's him like risking this man's life because he's like, I can get more listeners this way. Sure. Um, so it's, uh, you know, a uh, real great Kirk Douglas performance, uh, great movie, uh, Billy Wilder, all-timer. Um, a good one. And um, I think it could be an interesting musical. I don't know. I think we got to get a Cronenberg musical, though. I think that's that's the thing we got to really focus on. And good I Ringers the- would be another good one, I think, because then you got, like, the this love relationship between these two twin brothers. And, like, I think there's some interesting <laughs> duets you could do in there. Yeah. Um, and it's not as, like, body horror, so there's not that, like requirement of um of stage production to yeah like, but you could do sure. it elephant man style where you don't sure. actually have the costume it's more implied i don't sure. know um video drum would be weird video yeah drum I, I love video drum i need to watch more cronenberg i've seen the fly i love the fly i've seen video drum i liked video drum i got a I gotta watch. I gotta. I know. I gotta watch Crash. I loved Titan a lot, so I know I gotta watch Crash um, for more gross movies about people and sex and cars. Um, Brown, have you seen Titan yet? No, I saw oh, not. It's great. Oh, you saw it? Oh, I... I saw Lamb last night. Though. Oh, oh, I do want to watch that. Um, 
That's pretty fun. But uh, yeah, uh, my my first time back at the movie theater in a year and a half at, at uh, our beloved music box uh, yeah. was for Titan, and uh, it was great. Oh, God. Hey, Macarena. Uh, friends, <laughs> thank you. Was... So, you'll, Bran, you'll get it when you see it. Uh, <laughs> I believe you. It was Fred. the second, yeah. What? It was no, the no. second, like, uh, never mind. We'll, Bran, you and I can talk about it offline. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, we can we can we're over time but it's fine um fred thank you so much for being here is there anything i don't know anything you want to plug anything you want to share with our listeners uh you know letterbox is the place you can find me most frequently uh just fred pelzer on there um also i'm the uh managing editor for the on spec screenwriting blog so you can also find me there uh all those places then go back to my website which has my other stuff so and it's all fred pelzer just look for fred pelzer there's not a lot of us (laughs) Fair or not. We'll link your website. <laughs> we'll we'll do we'll do the things. We'll do the do. Um, Fred, thank you for being here. We'll 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 fit. We'll yeah. We'll talk about Titan. We'll, we'll it's gonna be great. Um, great. Well, thank you for being here. I want to thank Brand Moorhead for producing and editing the show, and I want to thank each and every one of you out there for listening. And I want to thank Emily Harrington for our artwork. I want to thank M Modaf and Josh Stanley for our kickoffs theme song if you like the show be sure to rate us review us and subscribe for future episodes and you can follow us on instagram and twitter at movie the musical and if you want to support the podcast get some sweet bonus content go to patreon.com slash movie the musical and consider becoming a monthly member and i'll once again remind you friday november 19th at 8 p.m at davenport's piano bar and cabaret you can still get tickets to see movie the musical the cabaret it's going to be live in person Bran and myself and some special guests performing songs from the musicals we've talked about on the show. Special prizes, trivia. Uh, it's going to be very silly, and I think you're going to have a great time. Um, that's all for now. Keep on singing. Why should you be happy when I'm not? The dour line to go out on, but I like it. Life is sad, folks. <laughs> deal with it don't listen to the fake news (laughs) truth social